Welcome to Podcastica Patristica. We're your hosts. I'm Gerhard Steuben. And I'm Tyler Stanley. Today, we're talking about St. Macrina the Younger. She is a mother of the church and the sister of the famous Cappadocian fathers, St. Gregory, St. Basil, and their friend, the other St. Gregory of Nazianzus. Before we get into St. Macrina's life and legacy, we just want to remind you that this podcast is made possible by Patristica Press, which is Gerhard and my and our friend and colleague Jake Robbie's venture into making books. Our entire project is to make ethical books ethically, so we are very conscious about how we treat our authors, the materials that we use to make our books, and how we structure our business. So if you'd like to support the podcast, we encourage you to go to patristicapress.com books and check out the books we've got. And we've got some great books lined up coming up this year, yeah. including my own. What's yours, Tyler? Mine is The Separation of Church and Estate. Capitalism and the Christian Conscience. It is essentially my deconstruction of capitalism based on ethics, um, and my ethics are based on Christian scripture and tradition. So those of you who listen to this podcast are interested in Christian tradition, my book brings a little bit of that in to talk about capitalism. When's uh, it releasing, Tyler? It releases for pre-order. You can buy it today. Uh, it is available at patristicapress.com and uh, it will be officially released on June 1st. But again, you can pre-order that today. And we've got another book coming up uh, called 17th and Dutton that Gerhard's been working on. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so we have a book by Awako um, Staple um, named Craig Nash. He was a longtime member of the a church here in town called University Baptist Church, which is known for being the place where Kyle Lake, a early evangelical postmodern leader, um, came out of before he tragically died in an accident at the church. Um, David Crowder was the worship leader there for a long time. Um, and this is about Craig's experience with this church as it relates to um, the burgeoning evangelical uh, postmodern movement and like the emergent church yeah, movement. like emergent church like figures like Brian McLaren and Rob Bell show up in the book as they related to uh, University Baptist Church and so it has a broader appeal to anyone uh, even outside of Waco um, and has a lot of, it's one person's memoir, but an incredibly instructive memoir about what it means to belong to a community, especially a community of Christians. Hmm. Um, also, uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you obviously like podcasts. We at Tristica also put out a podcast called the Reformation Podcast, 
that's hosted by myself and other Patristica owner, Jake Robbie. And we do essentially what happens on this podcast, um, but with medieval and Reformation era Christianity. So um, by the time you are listening to this, by the time this podcast releases, there will be an episode on Martin Luther up. And coming up soon after that, we'll have an episode just talking about the 95 Theses. In case you're confused, uh, and you've already listened to the Reformation podcast, and you noticed that I was the co-host, it's because I started out doing it with Gerhard, doing that podcast with him, and for a few reasons decided to step back, and Jake took my place there. So, And I think Jake is better suited for that material than I am, so uh, I'm excited to see what happens with that podcast. So go check it out. It's the Reformation podcast. You can find it, uh, if you want to stream it online, it's also at patristicapress.com, and, uh, or you can find it on your favorite podcast app, probably what you're using at this moment. Unless you like to have different podcast apps for different eras of church history, mm. which, if that's you, power to you, man. Yes. Or woman. Or woman. Hashtag feminism. <laughs> so, what are we drinking today, Gerhard? Uh, we are drinking... Uh, I've mostly drank uh, Old Fashions. Um, this is Tyler's idea, so Tyler, why, uh, why Old Fashions? Because today we're talking about good old-fashioned monasticism. Mm. The, the original kind of salt-of-the-earth monasticism, but, but spiritual salt. Right. Not, not physical salt-of-the-earth. So we're yeah. drinking spirits, and so it's like... <laughs> The spiritual, because the material is bad, and you want to get away from that. Tyler literally just came up with that, like, spiritual <laughs> bit on the fly, and I will, I will affirm that, because that was clever. I actually thought of it earlier. Did you really? Yeah. Oh, bummer, you just didn't say anything. <laughs> okay, well, it's fine. Uh, the maraschino cherries of mm-hmm. uh, early Christianity. Uh, this is going to be, you know, monastic Christianity as it, at its most essence. Mm-hmm. Uh, what you hear today is monastic Christianity as it develops for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. Yeah, it's very stereotypical monastic Christianity. So, you want to get into it? Let's get into it. So let's begin with who St. Macrina was. Um, Macrina came from basically the superstar family of saints they're like the jacksons of (laughs) (laughs) monasticism so uh like i said before macrina was the oldest sister um to uh, saint basil saint gregory um she had another brother uh named peter who was a, a very influential uh lawyer um i think he was the lawyer she had lots of family members who were rhetoricians lawyers i mean people who spoke for money um her younger brother did that for a while her older brother did that for a while i think her father did that for a while when you think of rhetoricians or speakers like you don't typically think of like the most prestigious people in society like in our world politicians or musicians or things like that are like the apex of celebrity but in the ancient world a really good speaker was like the rock star of the world and so her family members 
were both really pious Christians and uh, sort of rock, sort of like mini rock stars in their world. Uh, you might think of them as the Gaineses at this particular moment in American history, uh, known for being both religious and having a secular uh, following. Hmm. By the Gaineses, he means the people who make the TV sh- or made the TV show. Oh, yeah, it's over. Uh, Fixer Upper. Fixer Upper. Chip and JoJo. Chip and Joanna Gaines. They're based here in Waco, so it's like permeated our culture here. <laughs> Everything in Waco is about Magnolia Market and yeah. the Gaineses. So. People like fly from you know Japan. It's an actual <laughs> pilgrimage for Christians. I, I know people who like drove here from Arkansas, where I'm from, to visit Magnolia and to go to like the driveway to one of the Gaines's houses and take pictures and film no way. it. It's a pilgrimage. Uh, one time I was driving to Nashville uh, with a friend of ours um, and we stopped at like some really cheap looking Mexican restaurant in Arkansas and they happened to be watching Fixer Upper That's on the big TV. They're most known here in Waco though for shutting down roads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Them and Baylor. <laughs> All right. Once again, we're off the rails. Uh, so, <laughs> so McCrenna, uh, Peter, I don't know if Peter was the lawyer, but Peter was an, another monastic figure and founded a convent. Uh, McCrenna founded one eventually. Peter also founded one, and they were pretty close by each other um, on the banks of the river Iris. So, uh, now Cratius was one of her brothers, another relatively famous guy back in the day, uh, led a brilliant career in rhetoric. Um, but at the age of 21, he withdrew to a remote part of the country and lived a life of prayer and poverty and carry, caring for, uh, sick people and old people until he was accidentally killed on a hunting accident, uh, while trying to get food for the people in his care. So not, not just bear baiting. Bear baiting? Like, well, like Teddy Roosevelt? Did he do that? I think someone did it for him, and then he said, no, I'm not killing that bear now, because uh, that's not a noble way to kill animals. Yeah. Uh, Nacritus. Uh, is that the name? Nacratius. Nacratius. Cratius. Nobly killed. Cratius killed animals really nobly. Yeah. For other people, not for his own, you know, sick pleasures. Yeah. For their healthy pleasures of wanting to survive. It's reasonable. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, not only was Macrina's, were Macrina's siblings extremely valued members of their own community and then their legacy is massively inspiring for the rest of Christian history. Um, she, even her parents and grandparents uh, were saints. Her father was Saint was a Saint Basil. Her mother was... Um, I forget. I keep forgetting her her mother's name, Amelia Saint Amelia. Uh, her grandmother was Saint Macrina the Elder, who studied under a guy named Saint Gregory Thaumaturgus, uh, which means like Gregory the Miracle Worker or Wonder Worker. And uh, fun fact: Gregory Thaumaturgus was converted and then studied under none other than Origen of Alexandria. And that's extremely important because the Cappadocian fathers and Cappadocia is a a region in what is today Turkey. 
and these uh this family macrina's whole family was in the region of cappadocia or nearby regions around there so they're known as the cappadocian fathers and they were all extremely influenced by origin and we keep coming back to him and i still hold that origin is the single most important figure in early christianity obviously outside of jesus and the apostles and so. i say okay uh <laughs> origin was really important augustine was the most important early church father or i mean augustine has what he has because of origin's influence uh we're just gonna have to do an augustine's episode and have a uh epic rap battle of history to to throw down we should definitely do that. <laughs> but I can't rap. No. Um, and nor should I. Yeah, we're... Like, <laughs> uh, we like to sit and read dead guys. Yeah. We don't typically like to rap. <laughs> Not usually. Uh, but that does remind me about Origin and episodes on Origin. We have a new project coming up, which we should have talked about earlier. Um, we are doing sort of a book club type project where we are going to read through the entirety of Augustine's City of God, which is one of the most influential texts in human history, uh, especially in the West. Um, maybe I should say in Western history, but maybe human history yeah, too. I, hum- I mean, like... Uh, even outside of Christian, uh, the realm of Christen- Christendom, uh, City of God is read by politicians and lawyers like it's such a vast and important work that it i think it's something that i should probably read i haven't read it yet it's i think it was one of the top five most read books in all of the middle ages really yeah it was definitely augustine's most read book and augustine was the most important theologian in the west mm. and the in theology like was in aquinas's words the queen of the sciences yeah so like the most intellectual of the most intellectual, what every other sphere of human knowledge has to bow to, is theology. And the most important theological thinker is Augustine, and his most important book is The City of God. So we should read City of God. Now, it is a very long book. It's over a thousand pages, and that's pretty daunting. So what we are doing in order to help you through it is we're going to do sort of a mini episode series and we're going to post it here on Podcastica Patristica um, and it's going to be short episodes. Um, We're going to go two chapters at a time throughout an 11 week period and just give you a brief rundown summary of what Augustine is arguing in that particular passage. So uh, you can read along with us. We're going to actually hear in our town of Waco, we're going to actually do an in-person book club reading through this, and we're posting this so that any of you who want to join um, can do so. Who knows, maybe we'll find a way to have online conversations and keep this going um, outside of podcast and face-to-face meeting. We'll see. If you listen, I mean, get on our Facebook and comment with questions about Augustine, we'll respond. Yeah. Also, like us on Facebook. Also, rate and review us on iTunes. And follow us on Twitter. Yeah, that's where you're going to find uh, updates about this project. So go ahead. If you don't already have it, order yourself a copy of City of God. Uh, Penguin uh, Publishing has a copy that's pretty affordable. That's the one I have. Yeah, that's the one I have. That's I think that's like the one everyone gets. So nice. 
Anyway, back to Macrina. <laughs> so, um, that all got around because I was talking about, uh, origin is very influential and you're going to see that, uh, you're going to see themes. If you've listened to our other episodes about origin and people who are influenced by origin, you're going to see some themes popping back up about, um, materiality and souls and, um, celibacy. asceticism, celibacy. Yeah. So be listening for those. All right, so there are two main texts that we know about Macrina. Gerhard, do you want to tell us about those two? Uh, sure. Um, so the first is the life of St. Macrina. This is, if you know anything about lives, like the genre lives, it's kind of like a biography. It's like how ancient writers wrote biographies. Um, and... Basically what it is, is trying to tell the life of a person whom they respect with an eye towards influencing the life and thought of people in their own day. Um, and so it was um, biographies told with uh, what we might call a didactic purpose. Talking about a, an important person or a respectable person in order to teach what the good life is, or how you should engage with life, or how you should think. And so, uh, The Life of Macrina was written by Macrina's brother Gregory, uh, Bishop of Nyssa, and it was told by Gregory probably in order to teach uh, Christians, his congregants, all of the Christian world, whatever, um, how to be a good, pious, philosophically rigorous Christian and how to uh, live your life well and how to die well. That's kind of the what all early Christian lives are like. Um, so that's the life of Macrina. It just goes from her life as a very young girl to her death. Um, some miracle stories thrown in there for good measure. But part of that is Macrina supposedly gives a speech, uh, which is recorded in a second work called... Uh, it's called, it's also written by Gregory. Yeah. And it's called Dialogue on the Soul and Resurrection. And it's a conversation between Macrina and Gregory in the style of a dialogue, like Plato. Actually, we might talk about this a little bit more later, but uh, Macrina is presented as another Socrates, as like a better Socrates. And so this is, uh, Gregory is posting, like positing questions to Macrina and like giving objections to her answers and like well what about this well what about this and macrina is giving perfect answers to all of these questions in perfect philosophical christian form and and this dialogue happens during a period that's actually talked about in the life of macrina um, and if you want to get started like if you haven't read much early christian stuff i'd suggest life of macrina as a good place to begin. It's narrative, so it's not super dense philosophy and theology. It's not hard to read. It's also very short. It's less than 30 pages. So we will post a free PDF of this text for you on the show notes. If you go over to uh, the website page for this episode, you can find it there. Um, but going back to the genre of life, I think maybe it's important to understand hagiography and what that is. 
because there are a lot of unbelievable things happening in this text, um, like miracles and sort of Macrina's life and the way she talks is kind of unexpected. So do we believe this or not? Do you want to talk a little bit about the genre of philosophy, of hagiography and maybe what that word means and do we believe this? Um, <clears throat> so hagiography just means like writing about saints. Hagios, holy, different, um, the word for saint. And then graphe, uh, it's where we get where, like graphic and to make a graph it's just to write. And so a hagiography just means writing about saints. Um, and so... Like with the life genre, uh, the the bios, um, hagiography is a specific type of life um, text, and it's written for a specifically Christian purpose. Um, it's written to inspire people to be good, pious Christians, and so um, often what it's going to be is um, the stories of Christians who rejected the um, value systems of the cultures around them um, and lived lives more in keeping according to the gospel or according to the hagiography writer uh, in keeping with the gospel um, and so that often comes out as people rejecting like status and money and good careers in order to go be monks somewhere Kind of in the same way that we might write hagiographies today about, uh, you know, great missionaries who left good accounting firms and went to Papua New Guinea and gotten eaten or something like, or that end of the spear book. Like, yeah, uh, it's written not in order just to tell you about Macrina, but to tell you about how you should be a better Christian. But because they were ancient people who were less skeptical about miracles and things. It's often going to, like, prove how great of a person it is and prove, like, this is actually God's intended um, pattern for humanity by using miracles and saying, like, oh, Macrina was so pious and this was actually the correct piety in contradistinction to all the Greek piety out there because we do miracles. Hmm. So it's, like, proof of the piety. That's Pro how I read the it. The proof of the piety is in the <laughs> hagiography. <laughs> So do do you think Macrina did miracles? Oh, hell if I know. I don't like. <laughs> I, I I tend to be skeptical about that kind of thing. What do you think? I'm in the same boat. I don't know. Like, I don't know. Like, ain't before 1900, 1800, people were making up miracles all the time. Like, you know, if uh, if p people came to you with a thousand miracle stories and they were all basically the same you'd probably disbelieve all of them if they had contrasting messages but who knows maybe one or two of those are real hmm. i don't know <laughs> so maybe macrinas were real maybe the other billion are real i don't know <laughs> cool all right we will leave you with that to ponder and fall into some <laughs> existential dread uh but we'll move on to the life of macrina as we said, she's got this great family of amazing people, and they're all birthed from St. Amelia, uh, this uh, amazing woman, so amazing that Macrina devoted her entire life to caring for and serving 
and being present with her mother. So Macrina was originally betrothed to some guy, and this guy ends up dying before their wedding date, which, you know, that's super sad. But Macrina, deep down wanting to live a life of celibacy, uh, because this is the higher way to live, the more pure way to live, uh, she considers herself still married to this guy that she was betrothed to. So uh, whenever her betrothed dies and they're, you know, considering, you know, uh, when her parents are considering hooking her up with a new person, she says, no, I'm still married. That would be wrong for me to marry some other guy. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to live the life that I want to live and be a celibate, devout, philosophical person. So it's really interesting to see, uh, actually this, the whole life of Macrina is really interesting because Macrina as a woman is taking charge of her life in a really interesting way. Like several times it kind of uses language that is Macrina kind of took over and said, no, I'm not doing that. I'm doing what I believe is right, uh, which is for a society as intensely patriarchal as theirs. It's really interesting to find this praising Macrina for breaking those kind of sociocultural norms. Yeah, I so. mean, and she does lots of masculine things. At one point, uh, Gregory calls her his father. Uh, she was like a father to him. Also a mother, but she says that yeah. she was like a father. Yeah. Interestingly, along with that, um, I think one thing that we see in the life of Macrina that we don't see in a lot of masculine hagiographies is that it's not just retire and go be a monk somewhere and forget all of your family duties. Like, she also has, um, she fulfills her pious calling through being a house, a house manager and doing, like, female servant tasks. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got stories like John Chrysostom, who doesn't quite become monastic until his mother dies. Um, but with and like, but that's seen as an impediment to his piety and monastic training. For Macrina, it seems like, uh, to use the letter to the Timothy's words, uh, she was saved through childbearing. Um, hmm. Like she was, she got her holiness through living as a woman in a household, and so that was taking care of her mother and doing things like that. And her. Uh, siblings yeah she uh I, I can't remember exactly her dad's death uh i can't remember that part of the story but for a long time she you know after her her betrothed dies she decides um to devote herself to her mother and their relationship is extremely close she ra- essentially raises her siblings. And that's why Gregory calls her uh, father and mother and teacher. And throughout the text, Macrina is a teacher. Uh, like I said earlier, she's presented as sort of a new Socrates and this philosophical great person of wisdom. Um, and she is very much a teacher. And Gregory has zero hesitation 
in saying, like, everything I know, I know because Macrina taught me. And even as far as the relationship between the mother and daughter, between Amelia and Macrina, um, let's back up a little bit. Their family was extremely wealthy. Uh, it was a very prominent family in Cappadocia. Um, I think it was Macrina's grandfather who was martyred and all of his property was stolen under the Diocletian persecutions. And somehow, I guess, their family still had a certain amount of wealth um, by the time uh, this generation comes along with Macrina and Gregory and everyone. And Macrina's mother is managing all of their properties, which is apparently a significant amount of land. And, I mean, they have maids and servants and all of this stuff. And what I find extremely interesting is that Macrina, as she is for fulfilling her what she perceives as her calling to care for her mother and attend to household tasks and manage all these properties and such, she persuades her mom to give up on any sort of class distinctions. As a stereotypical monastic, she says there's no such thing as a maid or a servant, or a master. We are all servants. And so she says, get rid of all this whole idea of all of these maids. They're not our maids. They are our sisters. And treat everyone exactly the same. And um, interestingly, Gregory is one of the only very early church fathers to advocate for abolishing slavery. And there's a really great article by James Cameron Carter, who is a black liberation scholar. He does he wrote a paper on Gregory's argument uh, against slavery. And allegedly, Gregory gets this from his sister, Macrina, uh, who is all about erasing class distinctions. She also is all about getting rid of all your material attachments and all of your property and just distributing it among those who have need, kind of like, you know, Christians do. And uh, that's why she starts a monastery with, along with her brother. So, Macrina is interesting, like, in that she doesn't just put out, she doesn't just say, like, okay, don't call them slave anymore and, like, treat your slaves nicely. Uh, the text almost registers some shock at the fact that she even herself goes and does the slavery type things. Mm -hmm. um, uh, she doesn't just like take an interest in helping the slaves do better and then tr calling them by nicer names. Uh, but she like gets in there and she makes meals herself. She does things like that mm -hmm. herself, which is not like shocking to us today because we all make our own meals. But um, in that day, that was like what a slave would do in like a richer family. And so she was taking on the form of a slave herself. Mm -hmm. um, I think the closest parallel we have um, in our world is the like like the owners of a company who also like perform the lowest tasks in the company. Um, my father-in-law is a mechanic um, and owns a like car repair shop, but he's he's doing the work of mechanic. He has a few like employees, but he does all of the same work as them. Um, for a very short time here in Waco, I worked at a place that had a pizza shop in it, and 
one of the three owners of uh, the pizza shop restaurant area. Like he was the one waking up early to come and cook pizzas um, along with some other employees. And while we today might say slavery is inherently a bad thing, um, in their world, it would have been shocking for the owner to do the slave-like things. Just like Tyler and I would say, uh, running a business where some people are owners and some people are uh, paid slave laborers is immoral. Wage laborers. Wage laborers, um, as they're traditionally called in America (laughs) until today. Uh, Maybe an inherently immoral thing, but a really good Christian boss gets down and does the wage labor type activity. The, I mean, yeah, so like, if you read my book, you'll see that I, I would argue <laughs> that like the really good Christian boss thing to do is abolish the idea of boss. Right. Uh, so here's a quote from the section of Life of McCrenna where she, she is leading her mother in this attempt to abolish these distinctions between master and slave. Uh, it says that the life of the maiden, who is Macrina, the life of Macrina became for her mother a guide towards the philosophical, immaterial way of life. Turning her away from all she was accustomed to, she led her to her own standard of humility, prepared her to put herself on an equal footing with the community of maidens, so as to share on equal terms with them one table, bed, and all the needs of life, with every difference of rank eliminated from their lives. See, when I read that, I don't hear she's getting rid of slaves. I hear she's keeping the slaves but treating them better. Hmm. Um, Gregory of Nyssa was about getting rid of slaves. But this seems to me like the boss still having employees but doing employee things. I don't know. That's, that's what I get when I read it. I would go further because of the monastic ideal. The whole point of that being that they're... Like, while there is a teacher of the monastery, the needs, it's so, I mean, it's sort of the, I don't know, Marx's way of putting it was from each according to their ability to each according to their need. Like, that is the ideal of a monastery and even basically what it said in Acts. Each person is bringing and each person who has need is taking what they need. And I think her, I think Macrina viewed her house as a monastery and then eventually she establishes her own monastery and that it's set up in that that way i don't know yeah i mean they still have maids though like even if they all have the same bed and food like there's still a community of maids agree to disagree i agree to disagree maybe i just want macrina to be more 21st century minded but gregory was i mean like and gregory wrote this text so maybe gregory wanted it to lead you to that conclusion hmm So, um, whatever was the case in their family, in their household, um, at very least, they were monastic-like, um, and so their mother lived a good, pious Christian life, um, and that's supposed to be the message, is that Macrina is influencing other people to be good, um, monastic-influenced Christians, um, and the text really jumps, um, from end of the mother story to Macrina's own death. Like, it's just kind of jarring how quickly it jumps. Um, in the PDF I'm looking at, it's a solid page and a half between her mother dies and Macrina on her own deathbed. Um, and 
in between that is Basil dying. Uh, and... Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> There's so much death in this. Like, it's, yeah. it goes from death to death to death, which is maybe in itself part of the message. I think it probably is. Especially when you pair that with uh, the dialogue on soul and resurrection. Because mm. the whole... So, if I can jump in here for a second. The narrative is is really carried by death here. Because their mother dies. And then... Uh, so, by this time, the siblings have split up. Gregory's doing his thing. Uh, Basil's doing his, you know, all these siblings have split up and established their own careers and reputations. Actually, Gregory, uh, again, the author of this text, was in a really interesting position because the Arian controversies had flared up again, and Basil was caught in the middle of it. He was arguing for what had been established as the Orthodox view, and the Arians were really pushing him uh, he actually, like Athanasius, was accused of money laundering and was on the run from the Arian faction. So his life was sort of fraught with controversy and distress. And so at this time, Basil had died, their their sibling had died, and it really hit the family hard. Uh, so Gregory makes this journey to Macrina's monastery because he wants to see her again and when he gets there it turns out that she is she has a debilitating fever and is not doing well at all but the te- so that's what the text does in a in like a page it says mom dies oh by the way basil's dead and everyone is sad so gregory goes to meet macrina oh by the way she is in extremely poor health so you want to pick it up from there? <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, uh, she's in poor health, and this gives uh, Gregory of Nyssa, again, the author of the text, a chance to just kind of think about life, death, and what's valuable. And like we've been mentioning over and over again, uh, this is the context in which uh, there's the dialogue between Macrina and Gregory, which is just literally hey, uh, what about souls? Do those exist? And in what sense? And what's the resurrection? And things like that. And just the fact that that text is so much longer than this one, uh, Tyler said he figured out earlier that it's about 40,000 words. Um, That's big. It's much bigger than this, like, 20, 30-page little document that we're mostly looking at today, um, the life. But... What's most telling about that, like not just the length of it, but in this text itself, one of the things Macrina is praised for is not being sad about all those deaths. Um, one of the things Macrina is praised for is embracing them in what we might call, or what they might have called like a philosophical spirit. She is thought of as especially virtuous and in this context, especially masculine in that she doesn't get overwhelmed with emotions. Um, She says, you know, death, huh? Here's my philosophy of death and life and the soul and the spirit. Um, And she tries to uplift everyone with hope because, as Tyler mentioned before we were um, started recording, uh, they see hope and uh, sorrow as uh, opposites. You cannot both be sorrowful about the death of your family and hopeful in the future resurrection. And this is going to be like a riff off of Paul. Um, We do not grieve as those who have hope. 
in most early Christian texts, and up until pretty much the modern era, that's read as, we do not grieve at all, we have hope. That's kind of troubling, because we think differently, like, Gregory is, I, I found, at least the translation that I read of this, Gregory is just a really beautiful writer, he conveys emotion really well, uh, talks about just kind of his internal turmoil of trying to be as philosophical as Macrina, but having a hard time holding back the tears, but she's just, you know, stoic, straight-faced, oh, our brother died, here is how philosophically we should live our lives. And that's like a rhetorical tool in both, I mean, in the ancient world and the modern world, like, you say, I'm just a humble so-and-so, but I have this other example that I want to show you who's the paragon of all virtue so you don't seem like an arrogant asshole like (laughs) Gregory's saying he's wanting to preach like a stoic sort of don't feel emotion at life's events but he doesn't want to do it in a way to say like emulate me because I'm so great he's saying like I know I'm this is hard I'm there with you but this example this other person who I can point to without being accused of being arrogant that's who we should all be like I want to reiterate how interesting it is that this is a woman who's portrayed in this in this light. Like, we don't get a lot of women portrayed as this paragon of philo- philosophical virtue to be emulated. And for ancient people, Gerhard has used this language a couple times, how she's presented as masculine. That's how ancient people thought. Like, to be courageous, like the word courage was literally manliness. Uh, And women were considered to be not able to control their emotions very well. So Macrina is described as, in these masculine terms, she has control over her emotions unlike normal women. So if we can get around for a moment the inherent sexism of that sort of thought, it's still really, if we can use the word progressive, for Macrina to be presented as this uh, paragon of philosophy and spirituality. Uh, she's presented as angelic in her demeanor and her ability to not only transcend emotion, but also her ability to transcend material needs and material things. Like whenever she left the house after her mom died, she basically got rid of all her possessions and lived a monastic life and just gave to everyone as they had need. She only had one thing to wear, and I mean, that reminds us again of Origen. We talked about Origen only had one set of clothes, I think, and one maybe one pair of shoes and a staff or something. Like, that's this ascetic way of life. She is the example of how to live. And at her funeral, they couldn't find a nice enough dress for her because she only owned that one dress, and they say it was a dark-colored dress. So, like, it would be the equivalent of, like, someone today only owning, like, basketball shorts and a t-shirt from, like, a youth group or something, (laughs) like, and then wearing that, like, every day because they were so anti-possessions. And so when they're buried, they have to be buried in those basketball shorts and t-shirt because they don't own a suit. Yeah. It was like a debate between Gregory and one of the uh, acolytes, one of the younger uh, nuns at this uh, at this convent that Macrina had established as to like, 
do you think she would be okay if we ma let her wear this nicer thing or if we buried her in this necklace like do you do you think we can do this would she be okay with that because she was so uncaring about materiality and her whole philosophy was about transcending earthliness physicality and reaching spirituality and that takes us back again to origin whose whole thing because he was a platonist uh, was like this materiality is defective and materiality is evidence of defect and so we need to get beyond this into what really matters which is like the spiritual realm so do you want to talk a little bit about that sure uh in pretty much all christian thought except for some significant outliers uh, but they're still outliers there are two spheres of reality there's the physical and there's the spiritual and because they relied on so heavily on like greek philosophy and like plato and um people who follow in those traditions they were unanimous that there is a better and worse of those two. Uh, the spiritual is better, the physical is worse. And so uh, this is why monasticism becomes such a big thing. Because um, if you spend time in one of the two spheres, spend your attention on one of the two spheres, you're choking out the other one, essentially. So the idea is that if you spend your whole time thinking about food and a house and a carriage or something like if you spend your time focused on material things and we're not talking just about money here we're talking about like literally things that are made of materia like substance things like pieces of wood like if you spend your time thinking about creation as we understand it and um, then you're choking out the spiritual self which is where god is and which is where religion is focused um, and so if most people choke out their spirit by spending time, you know, thinking about music and art and food and swimming pools, I don't know, uh, then good pious Christians will choke out their material selves by focusing on things of the spirit. And part of that is a pre-modern understanding of what spirit and uh, physicality are. Um, before night around the late 1800s um pretty much everyone thought that there is an immaterial aspect of humanity people thought that there was a non-physical or pseudo-physical part of you called the soul or the spirit um or both sometimes and that this is the place where you thought and felt emotions and things like that um emotions is kind of tricky but at least thinking and so in order to devote yourself to spiritual things therefore become a more spiritual person therefore be a better christian you should spend your time thinking praying doing things that um, are internal to you things that are sedentary and this pulls you away from materiality which by definition pushes you into spirituality and when Origen and Macrina and Gregory use the word philosophy, this is what they're talking about. 
They're talking about the philos of sophos, the love of wisdom. They're talking about the love of the mind, of spirituality, and that by definition means monasticism for them. But that's not a that's not how we we think about it. I mean, like we think today that creation is good, like that when God created the world and made it good, that God actually meant that the world was good. And in fact, I wrote a book on this called Meaning Without Meaning, and where my basically whole point was that you should stop thinking so much. You should stop asking about meanings of life and spirituality and higher purposes and just live because you're a human and God likes that you're a human. This gets us into the uh, the second work about Macrina, the dialogue on the soul and resurrection, which is... I mean, this is, like, the stereotypical view of what the soul and resurrection are. Uh, it's exactly what Gerhard was just talking about. The soul is this intellectual... The intellectual component of a human is the soul. And when Gregory is asking Macrina all about the soul, that's exactly what she says. It's the thinking part. It's the intellectual part. But right now, you know, we've we've had the benefit if you want to call it that, of modern science. And now we understand that the intellectual part of a human is the brain. And we know about neurons and about cortices and the different parts of the brain and all this stuff that has now caused us to totally shift our understanding of a soul. And now we're, we're in this weird place where we don't really have a definition of a soul. Because for the last you know, 2,000 years, we thought it was the intellectual, emotional type part of you, or it's the part of you that makes the rest of you move. That's the other aspect of the soul that ancient people would have, and not so ancient people would have thought of it, is like, your arms and legs move, but they're animated by something. The anima, which is like Latin for soul, right? Yeah. Is uh, the part that makes you move. And they call that the soul. But now, again, we know, like, neurons fire and it makes your muscles contract. And so, what's the soul? So probably the most important railway accident in the history of the world uh, opened us up to our understanding, uh, our new modern understanding of the soul. There was this uh, guy named Phineas Gage, and in uh, 1848... Gage was working on a rail line and there was an explosion and this freak uh, series of events happened to where his mouth was open just the right amount and his head was tilted at just the right angle and the explosion happened in just the right place where a railroad spike went right through his brain but didn't actually hurt him like it just severed a couple like locations in the brain where they couldn't communicate. And this is a real story. This isn't yeah. like a philosophical thought experiment. This really happened to a real guy named Phineas Gage. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, totally real. You can read the medical report and it's fascinating. Uh, before uh, the railroad accident, before 1848, Phineas Gage was known as like a really respectable member of the community. He was like a blue-collar, hard-working, salt-of-the-earth, pious person, kind of like, and he would have been, you know, respected by people like Macrina and Gregory uh, because he did his work and went to church and was kind to babies or whatever. Uh, 
after 1848 and the railway accident, his personality changed. Uh, interestingly, he like he didn't lose like any memories or anything. What he lost was his personality. What he lost was his uh, old way of thinking and processing emotions. Um, and so a railroad spike going through his brain changed his what we usually call soul. So now he wasn't this kind church-going fellow anymore. Uh, he was, according to like the medical report written in this, you know, beautifully, hilariously Victorian prose, like, <laughs> you know, a, a vulgar chap kind of thing. Like he uh, he got really angry really quickly. He was he was a blasphemer. He was um, he had like wild emotional swings. Um, he couldn't reason with you well anymore. And so that this damage to the brain changed his thinking, his emotional processing, all the things that we traditionally focus, uh, associate with the soul. And so that by that study and then, you know, the next 150 years of modern medical science, we basically now know that people like Macrina's doctrine of the soul is not true. Like, we, we might be able to change it, and uh, uh, and adapt it to something that might be true, but we do have solid proof that the traditional Christian notion of the soul is not correct. Now, let me push back. Cool. Uh, so, Tertullian uh, has written quite a bit on the soul, and he even recognized this fact that you know uh so he would attribute emotions moving your body and thinking as an aspect of the soul but he also knew if you box someone on the head really hard they won't think straight or maybe they can't you know move themselves well anymore or maybe their you know emotions change so tertullian's way of thinking about this is that the soul is quasi-material like the soul is part of you and it's it has an impact on your physical self as well so it's kind of material in the sense that it can interact with your material self and your body and your emotions and so and everything like like physical impact on your head can affect your soul Therefore, your soul is kind of physical in a weird way, but not really physical. Yeah. That's not an answer. I'm just throwing that out there as like an interesting way that ancient people kind of knew that this was an issue they had to address. Right. In in a lot of, uh, you know, Greek writings, both Christian and not Christian, um, the soul is a physical thing. It's like... Mm. A physical substance that's just like really small it's like milky and yeah so like ooh, like a ghost like we think yeah, of yeah. like a ghost like it's it's got all the same portions that you do but it's kind of translucent actually tertullian thought that your your soul is going to still look like you like it'll have the same shape of nose and eyebrows and everything because it's it's like jello Whatever you put it in, it'll mold to that. And then whenever you take it out, it's still going to look like that. Huh. So your soul is just this condensed material-like stuff 
that has been stuck inside of you for so long that it's going to look like you whenever you pull it out. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, I love this stuff. Yeah, it's... I mean, it's... it. We were talking earlier, one of the greatest things about reading ancient and semi-ancient uh, philosophy and theology is that it helps you get outside of our own presuppositions and assumptions and helps you question those assumptions, sometimes to affirm them and sometimes to reject them. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think that the only things that exist are material, um, at least the only things that exist in the world. God is not material, um, but we are not God, and so we are only material. There's no aspect of Gerhard Steuben that you could not study in a test tube. Uh, what do you think, Tyler? I am inclined to agree with more ancient thinkers, that there is a thing such as soul, um, that there is a non-physical aspect to us. I can't say anything beyond that because I, because I recognize that like, you know, the Phineas Gage story is a legitimate challenge to what I think, because if the soul isn't the thing that makes you think, if it's not the thing that makes you feel emotions, if it's not the thing that makes you move, then what the heck is it? And I tend to put it in the realm of it's the thing more along the lines of, like, will uh, and decision-making. That's what I mean by will. Because I, since I am an open theist, I think that there needs to be something outside of material... Like, I'm not a materialistic determinist. By that, I mean my decisions aren't made because neurons are firing in my head that make me behave a certain way. I have a moral component to me that made me decide to commit this or that sin or this or that good deed outside of physicality um, or outside of God making me commit that thing, good or bad. And so Gerhard, as a Calvinist, has a different perspective on that. So... And I think his his uh, description of this is extremely compelling and challenging to mine. At this point, I have to just say, I don't know, it's a mystery. And I think Gerhard has really thoughtful and compelling answers on that. I mean, just like Tyler does. I mean, we both respect each other's thought. I mean, that's why we decided to do this podcast and then go into business together and then write books together is that, I mean, I respect Tyler's thought too, which you can read in Divine Providence, A Conversation. Yeah, we talk. I think we talk about we do the talk soul about quite soul. a bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, one aspect of the soul that I think is interesting and lives up to the Phineas Gage uh, issue is the Hindu notion of Atman. Like in classical Indian thought, the soul isn't the place where you think; it's just the spark of life. Like it's nothing else than the spark of life that exists within you, and then in really traditional thought, like, is reincarnated to other things. Hmm. And so, like, as a cow, you think as a cow. As a grasshopper, you think as a grasshopper. And as a human, you think as a human. But there's, like, there is a non-physical substance that, you know, is picked up like a droplet and put in each of those. Like that... There's there's some continuity between these beings that you're reincarnated as. Right. And that would deal with the problem of the resurrection, honestly. Like, if there was a some sort of a spark in you, God could just you know hide it for a little bit and then put it in a new body. Um, and and that that's perfect segue into the resurrection part of the dialogue with Macrina, 
is, uh, and, and we won't get into all the tediousness of that dialogue. Uh, we'll just kind of stay in this conversation, but, but Gregory and Macrina have this conversation. Gregory is kind of where Gerhard is like asking like, well, if there's a soul, then why, why blah, blah, blah. Why do we need this? Uh, and Macrina, not, I'm not in Macrina's position, but I, maybe closer, maybe closer. Yeah. So, which I think Gregory actually is in Macrina's position too. Like we said, Gregory is writing this thing. Yeah. Gregory believes what Macrina's answers are. Yeah. yeah. In the, yeah. He's Uh, just playing the role of the skeptic. Like those, you know, yeah. Modern science believing (laughs) heretics. Yeah. Uh, not like you don't believe science, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? I only believe in science. Uh, I must baptize you. (laughs) Good joke. (laughs) Jack Black. Gerhard's favorite actor. I am going to refrain from speaking (laughs) into this. Okay, so resurrection. So here's my problem with with what Gerhard suggests of the not with Gerhard says there's no soul as we have previously understood it. There's only physical. Like Gerhard said, there's no part of Gerhard that could not be studied in a test tube. And I would say, well, what about resurrection? Like, I mean, what about, I mean, you know, now today we put people in boxes after they're dead and we embalm them so that they don't decrode as fast. I mean, ancient Egyptians did it with mummies. But what about the people who actually are completely and utterly decomposed? Let's say when I die, I'm just my body is thrown in uh, a field to decompose and the nutrients from my body, you know, the, 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 all, everything breaks down and it becomes food for the grass. And then a cow comes along and eats that grass and, you know, the cow's body changes those nutrients into milk and the calf drinks that milk. And now somehow this physical part of me is now inside of a calf helping it to grow. Well, what if then at that moment, uh, the resurrection happens. Like, where am I? Where is Tyler? And um, so that's where I think there's a problem with the physical idea. I think this is why we have concepts like... Actually, uh, Macrina seems to think Hades is not hell. Hades is sort of where the soul goes, where the disembodied soul goes to wait for resurrection. So that was pretty or, common. Like or not, Abraham's bosom yeah. is something like that. That's like relatively common in yeah. ancient Christianity. Yeah. So I, yeah, yeah, very, yeah. So I, I don't, so that's my problem. That's one of the few reasons why I think we need something like a soul, why something like a soul makes sense is that this material stuff decomposes. I mean, even, uh, I think there's only one part of the human body which is in your cerebral cortex that doesn't expire and replenish itself there's like, under 200 neurons yeah so under 200 neurons there's the only part of the human body that doesn't replenish itself at some point so it's kind of the whole ship of theseus argument like if you have this ship and you take it apart piece by piece and use those pieces to build a different ship which ship is the true, like, the original ship? And so 
same with the human body like when i'm resurrected which cells would it be like which material parts would it be the ones that i had when i was born the ones that i have when i die that are now inside of this baby calf so yeah. Gerhard, disprove me uh i don't know about disprove but i mean like <laughs> i'll i'll try to even push the analogy further like even those 200 cells i i wrote this as a blog post years ago and i have not picked up the same illustration since in any writing but i still i still believe it like even those under 200 cells you could get rid of any one of them and you would still continue to be you so you could e- you could theoretically get rid of all of them just one at a time and they you would still be you right uh so let's say you ha- you get hit with a hammer or you go out drinking and cell 93 dies uh you're still you right well let's say in an alternate timeline the same thing happens but cell 94 dies right and then you know you can continue on to where none of those cells is actually the you-ness that makes you and if that's the case um that might challenge us to think about what it means to exist um and so the notion that a static me exists, I don't think is a philosophically uh, plausible thing, at least under my own like notions of the self. Like, I don't think Gerhard Steuben exists. Um, I think that Gerhard Steuben is a string of experiences through time. Um, and so that I existed as a 12-year-old child, and I exist as a 27-year-old person. Um, But there is not, like, a fundamental essence of me that links those two. It's just that there is a chain of connection, of being, of physical trade-offs that went from the one to the other. And so if that's the case, then it is not necessarily implausible that once we die, cease to exist for a while, and then God resurrects everything... Uh, those pieces could be brought back together, perhaps with other new pieces, uh, to be built into a new body that is still in continuity with the old body, just like my body today is completely different than, but still in continuity with the body of me as a 12-year-old child. It's plausible. But ultimately, um, I just have to say, I don't know, this is what the most persuasive arguments and scientific theories lead me to say. (laughs) Um, and on this I think it's this is not a new discussion and debate Um, there was Origen again uh, the most important figure (laughs) in early Christian the most important Greek figure uh, (laughs) in Christian thought uh, almost as important as Augustine uh, had this argument with a guy named uh, Celsus um And Celsus thought the Jewish-Christian notion of the resurrection was just really stupid for this exact reason. And I'll just read you a quote from that. Uh, It starts off with something like, you know, why would God do something so stupid as to light the fire on the oven again and cook up a new earth for, you know, souls to re-inhabit? Quote, this is simply the hope of worms. What sort of human soul would have any further desire for a body that has rotted? The fact that this doctrine is not shared by some of you Jews and by some Christians shows its utter repulsiveness. 
and that it is both revolting and impossible. For what sort of body, after being entirely corrupted, could return to its original nature in that same first condition which it had before it was dissolved? As they have nothing to say in reply, they escape to a, a most outrageous refuge by saying anything is impossible with God. But indeed, neither can God do what is shameful, nor does he desire what is contrary to nature. Um, so, uh, basically, Celsus says, because... Uh, the material world is below the spiritual world and it's all rotted away anyway so why would you want to go back to those rotted bodies but i love that he also argues like even some christians and jews reject this that's proof that it's stupid <laughs> yeah <laughs> even nothing. some of your own people don't think this <laughs> classic argument <laughs> continues to carry force today it does unfortunately <laughs> we watch oh i can pass by that um but Origen responds to this argument and he says, that's a bad argument, Celsus. I mean, God created the world in the first place. What's wrong with creation again? It wasn't so impossible that God created us with bodies. Why is it so impossible that God takes those same bodies somehow and builds it into something new? Didn't God create the world out of nothing? Can't God recreate the world out of something? And it's Origen's basic argument. I think it's a fine argument. It's just rejecting that anything is possible with God is a bad argument. I mean, like, things tend to seem to point to that. I mean, other arguments seem to say that we're essentially physical beings, if you take my line of thinking. Other arguments seem to point to that the physical resurrection is coming. Why can't we just have both? And to be clear, it is orthodox... Christian thought throughout the ages that physical resurrection is happening. Um, it's just what that means is debated. Uh, right. Is it the same body yeah. or is it a different body? I think even people who believe in the soul, if they're going to say the same body, like we don't get out of this problem. Mm. It's just that it seems better. It seems easier if there is something else linking. But if if we want to say it's the same body, which Paul, I think, it's important to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 that it is the same body. I don't know. That's my reading, though. Once again, we will leave you to ponder that and steep into some existential crisis. Or not. Or just go play cards. Yeah, that's probably a better thing to do. Who is that? Just go that philosopher. Out. Was it Hume? Who, when someone asked, how can you live with that philosophy? He said, I go and drink and play cards. <laughs> It's a good answer. So, uh, these are the conversations that ancient people had. And Gregory had this conversation with his sister. And uh, it is as important then as it is now. That might mean it's not really that important at all. But it is interesting. It's interesting. We can have this conversation and then go play cards or whatever the kids do these days. Play the... The newfangled X X play X station. X station. Play Fortnite. Fortnite <laughs> on your X station. So uh, I do play Fortnite, but not on my X station. You play Fortnite? I do. Do you not know that? Nope. Yep. I've never played it. It's fun. Cool. That's not an ad for Fortnite. Yeah, we. <laughs> they don't need ads. <laughs> they are well well stocked in the advertising department. So. Uh, 
After this dialogue about the soul, much like the one that Gerhard and I just had, uh, Gregory and Macrina continue uh, being together. Gregory learns from his sister um, as she is um, struggling through her health. Gregory even says that, and this is another testament to like her ability to transcend physical nature and be like an angel, is that even through her pain, which is clearly excruciating she's struggling to breathe Gregory says she didn't even whimper she just you know taught me as much as she was able so we've already told you a little bit of the end story but she does die there um, in Gregory's arms and he gives in to his base nature and cries for a little while the other nuns in the convent it says that they broke out into wailing and hysteria, which the word interestingly comes back to that uh, sexist language of... Uh, what does literally hysteria mean? Uh, Husteros is Greek for womb, so being womb. a woman. Yeah, so essentially they lost their manliness, their transcendence, their ability to control their emotions and gave in to their womanliness and cried uh uncontrollably and gregory finally had to say you know everyone shut up and be like macrina taught you to be she taught you to be above these emotions um and they really weren't able to it says that they still weren't really able to control themselves but um uh, that's essentially the story ends with her death and gregory goes on to say like Kind of like how the book of John, uh, whenever John, the gospel of John is wrapping up, it says all this Christ <laughs> did and more. And even if we wrote it down, we couldn't even fill up all the books in the world. That's basically how Gregory ends this. Uh, he says that she did so many more miracles. And I'm not going to tell you about all of them, but I'll tell you about a couple more. Uh, and this is actually a, a humorous story. Uh, Macrina meets this family. Uh, this uh, a father and mother and their daughter and their daughter is going blind she's got film over her eyes I forget what they said the exact disease was but she's going blind essentially there Macrina sees the little girl and she says I will heal your daughter in exchange for one thing if you let me make you dinner and show hospitality to you <laughs> that's the exchange classic and, and they reluctantly agreed no I'm just kidding they definitely agreed and so they go in and have the pleasure of her service and company. And uh, when they're leaving, the mother says, Oh, crap, we totally forgot. She promised to heal our daughter. And so they begin to turn around and then they look at their daughter and look in her eyes and they realize oh, she already did it. She healed their daughter from afar. That's the power of Macrina. And so it's this funny little story to remind you just how powerful Macrina was. I love, this is the last section of the book, and I just want to read it because it's amazing. Gregory is kind of saying, I know some of you are skeptics. I know some of you don't think Macrina really did all these miracles. Quote, For most people judge the credibility of what is told them by the yardstick of their own experience. And what goes beyond the power of the hearer, this they have no respect for suspecting that it's false and outside of the truth. For this reason, I pass over that incredible farming miracle at the time of the famine. 
how the grain was distributed according to need <laughs> and showed no sign of diminishing, how the volume remained the same both before it was given out to those who asked for it and after the distribution, and other miracles still more extraordinary, the cure of sickness, the casting out of demons, true prophecies of things to come. All of these are believed to be true by those who knew the details of them, even if they are beyond belief. But for those who are more bound to this world of flesh, they are considered to be outside the realm of what can be accepted. That is, by those who do not know that the distribution of graces is in proportion to one's faith, abundant for those who have in them a lot of room for faith. So this is Macrina's story, believe it or not. <laughs>